Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and today our guest is the great Fab Five Freddy, producer of the stunning new documentary Hold Your Fire, about a 1973 standoff between four young black men and the NYPD that began when the men tried to rob a sporting goods store and quickly spiraled out of control. Within hours, the men were holding the store owner and the customers hostage, but the cops had them pinned down outside. And meanwhile, the cops were held captive, in a sense, by a crowd of New Yorkers who wanted to make sure they wouldn't needlessly open fire. The incident is not very well remembered and has not been extensively covered in recent media, even though it's very reminiscent of the Attica and Dog Day afternoon standoffs that occurred soon before it did. But the new documentary, directed by Stefan Forbes, makes the case that the 1973 standoff marked the birth of modern hostage negotiations, and that the de-escalation tactics used by NYPD psychologist Harvey Schlossberg are still incredibly relevant today, and should be more widely used in all aspects of law enforcement. And now, here's a very abbreviated bio on Fab Five Freddy, an icon in the worlds of art, music, and film, who has spent much of his life bringing them together. I think he's one of the most important cultural ambassadors in U.S. history. He first became known as a graffiti artist, coming up at the same time as his friend Jean-Michel Basquiat, and then began hanging out with both rappers and post-punk artists such as Blondie and the Talking Heads. He explains in this episode how he leveraged those friendships to draw much greater attention to hip-hop music, in part through the Blondie song Rapture, the video for which featured both Fab and Basquiat. Fab Five Freddy also helped bring New York graffiti and hip-hop culture to the world with the 1982 film Wild Style, which he originated and starred in, and he's appeared in The Manchurian Candidate, American Gangster, and She's Gotta Have It, both the original movie and the TV series, among other films and TV shows. And, of course, he was the original host of Yo! MTV Raps, the show that brought hip-hop to millions of people, including me. In short, he's the coolest. Here's Fab Five Freddy, producer of Hold Your Fire. It's now in theaters and available on video on demand, wherever you demand video. Mm-hmm. Um, so first, what should I call you? Do you, do you prefer Fab Five Freddy? Yeah, Fab, Freddy, Fred. I get called a bunch of stuff. It all works. Uh, wonderful. Well, I'm Tim. Um, I know a lot of your conversations start with people telling you this, but I have to tell you too. Just thank you for introducing hip hop to my life when I was. Oh boy, thank you. A small child. I mean, I, I think of all the. <laughs> I like rehearsed this speech for you, and now I'm blowing it. Um, <laughs> just all the music. All of the like rhymes that I've had bouncing out of my head, all the philosophy, all wow. the political thought I owe to you. Oh man, I, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And just as a little footnote to that, when you said philosophy, my philosophy for KRS One was the first video I directed for that song, which you might remember from that period. So when you said philosophy, that's just like, oh, by the way, my philosophy, this is an early, <laughs> you know, KRS One's first video, single, I directed that. And a lot of people don't know, I directed a, I mean, a ton of music videos <laughs> even before your MTV rap started, so yeah. Well, you originated the idea for Wild Style. I mean, yeah. a little while later, you produced New Jack City. Um, yeah. You were involved in the film that became Downtown 81. I mean, you had an extensive film career well before your MTV raps. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was kind of it. You know, making Wild Style, the the first film on hip hop was kind of like film school for me, the way I look at it. 
because, you know, super underground, super low budget. Charlie Ahern, the, the director who I pitched it to and got him to make the movie, had only done films on Super 8, which is like ultra low budget music video. <laughs> uh, ultra low budget way to make film is what I should say. But that was a way to learn the craft at that time. So, yeah. So I'd love to talk about this movie and whether this is kind of an origin story for you, because as I see it, you're one of the great diplomats, honestly, in terms of getting ideas across cultures. Mm -hmm. uh, and this movie is very much about that and communication across across two wildly different cultures, mm. um, including the culture of police who, as we see in this movie, just see this see the world in a completely different way from the four young men who go in and take hostages. Yeah. So the first thing I want to ask, you were like 13 or 14 living in New York when this happened. Exactly. Do you remember it from when you were a kid? You know, what I realized when Stefan, who's a good friend, dear friend, the, you know, the director of the film, uh, came at me about seven or so years ago. Hey, Fab, you know, do you know anything about this? I was like, not really. But in thinking about why I didn't know, something that happened in the same time frame was the dog day afternoon hostage situation, which got a lot more police coverage. Or No, a lot. The media coverage that it got hit my radar because we weren't in a 24-hour news channel, social networking thing where things are always coming at you. So if you miss something that's going on just because you didn't watch this, this, the, 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 the six o'clock news or see the daily newspapers, you wouldn't know that this event was going on. So I think that sort of hit happened with me at that time, whereas the dog day afternoon incident was way out going towards Coney Island where I went to school. So I remember literally riding out on the train because it was like a news thing. We're like, we're live at this event in Brooklyn. And I, I caught that and was like, oh my God. So I rode out and stood in that crowd for a minute just to see all this excitement way back then as a young teen. But that event missed my radar um, in the impactful way that it you know, would have now. But as Stefan dug in and peeled back all the layers, I was like, wow. So when one of the first things I did was get an older kind of uncle um, relative who was more in tune, we had a lunch together and he remembered a lot more of the specifics. And then reading the articles, I got a sense of what it was. And then Steph did the heavy lifting of finding all those people doing the interviews, which made the film what it is. Yeah. One thing about those interviews is people are so honest. And I mean, I think they're being honest. And especially the cops, when they say things that they, if they'd had like a publicist with them, the publicist would have said, don't say that, you know? Yeah, so that's key. So what you're picking up on, which has become only recently hit me, really resonated with me. If I was sitting with those cops doing the same interviews, asking the same questions, I think they would have been a bit more guarded and I wouldn't have got, the same response that Steph, not understanding Stefan's politics, they just sitting in front of another white guy that's just asking them questions. You know, Steph's got, well, he's from Boston. I don't know if he's got Irish, but whatever. They clearly opened up in a way to <laughs> Steph that they wouldn't open up with me, I'm sure, or somebody of color, if you will, understandably. So that got even a better take, a more honest take, I think, which I think is what the, the film's about. Like, look, here's what it is. You know, 
these cops were who they were. But in all fairness, one of the things that we're hoping the film could help bring out is a is I was never down with defunding the police after George Floyd and, and the uprising that happened across America, around the world in response to his murder. But retraining, re-educating police, I think is something that needs to happen as a taxpayer. That's what I'm looking for. And with Harvey Schlossberg, what you'll see in the film is the, is the beginning of hostage negotiation, which, which exists worldwide because of this guy, Harvey Schlossberg, a traffic cop who got a PhD in psychology, uh, was brought in to give advice that helped defuse and deescalate a situation like had the typical solution, let's throw some tear gas in there and go in guns blazing. Clearly a lot more people would not have lived, people would have died. So that's the kind of overwhelming, amazing thing that comes out of this film that we are hoping people, and we want Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, the police commissioner and police administrations and officers coast to coast. I hope they take a minute to watch this film and, and realize how beneficial um, implementing these uh, techniques could be so we don't have to see people getting shot the way we've seen too many times on cell phone video. Yeah, and it's a, it's a charitable and even-handed movie to everybody. I mean, because even the, you know, the, guy, the guys who are in what's called the Black Liberation Army in 1973, who you can pin it, one, the cops pin it one way, it's like these are bloodthirsty terrorists and murderers who just like wanted to kill cops. And then you can look at it from their perspective where they're like, I'm 22, 23, 24 years old. I just went to go steal some guns from a sporting goods store. I didn't realize this was going to turn into a hostage situation for 47 hours. Correct. And now here I am. Just the lack of communication between the two sides and how they see each other is yeah. incredible. Yeah, it was an unfortunate incident, you know, from the beginning. And I just want to point out, it's okay that, I mean, you see the film again, you'll see these guys were not the Black Liberation Army. That's who the police thought they were. Ah, okay. It's okay because they were raging at that time and cops had been killed. They were ambushing cops on these, um, uh, they would have a call, 911 or whatever, and police would show up and they'd get ambushed. So I remember as a, at that time as a kid, as a result of that, when cops showed up for anything, there were always two cop cars. It was always like a cop car and a backup because this had happened in Brooklyn, in this area. So the police thought that was who they were. But these guys were Sunni Muslims, which mm -hmm. is different than Elijah Muhammad's Black Muslims. And they had beef at the time with black Muslims and they were trying to get guns to protect themselves. Cause in the doc, you remember Shuaib had had a confrontation with a black Muslim who was, had, he felt had came to his house to, to do harm to him and his family. So that was there. And then there was another incident, I think in DC where a bunch of people were murdered that was Sunni Muslims. In fact, the young Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who was, I think had just become that, um, people he was affiliated with, which were a different type of Muslims. It was more the traditional Muslims that pray three, four, five times a day and that whole deal as opposed to black Muslims. So anyway, Shuhaib had a beef with them and the stupid move was to go and rob their store to get guns, rifles to protect themselves, turns into a hostage situation. Unfortunately, a cop gets killed. Yeah. Um, hostage by cops. 
Yeah, because when they saw where the bullet came from, it couldn't, it came from the direction of in the store. So cops open fire, but still, as Shuhaib says in the film, if they not have done that, that cop would still be alive. So a life was lost indirectly because of that incident. And so that was the tragedy. But, but, the, but the great lesson and the reward or the benefit, if we will, is the fact that hostage negotiation was born, which yeah. exists worldwide. They diffuse and de-escalate major crisis situations. There's a, a library full of books now on how to do this and different techniques, but it all begins with Harvey Schlossberg. So that's one of the things that we were pushing and hoping uh, that police and other administrations and other people and just across the board, hold your fire, man. We could talk these things out, you know, this gun culture, this violence, that's a part of America's culture. We need to figure out a way. Look what just happened in Buffalo, sadly. I mean, that's a crazy person, of course, but we have too many of these people with too easy access to these high powered weapons, man. So Hold your fire is what we're preaching and trying to hit people over the head with uh, in a metaphorical way, not hit them physically, <laughs> you know, just to get some change. And, you know, I'm not a police officer. I don't I don't have this perspective and what they deal with, but you can't imagine a more potentially volatile situation than the one you have in this movie. So it's like if the, if they were able to get through this with the minimization of violence that they did, you can yeah. certainly get through a traffic stop. Listen, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's the simple in this intense, dramatic situation. What you what you're left with is this nerdy cop that the tougher beat cops thought was gay because the guy was a nice guy and you know it was like an articulate and had books and was they 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 thought he was wit. He wasn't that macho cop kind of guy that you probably needed to be a tough guy to be a cop in New York City. However, that disconnect that I think also is a problem problem I have with, with policing. You have these guys, particularly in New York City, who rarely live in the neighborhoods where they're policing. They, that, that's rare. When I was a kid growing up in Bed-Stuy, not far from where this happened, there would be beat cops and you would get to know them, whether they were black or white. These guys developed a rapport with the community. So you can imagine if something went down, think of Eric Garner, where they choked the guy to death selling cigarettes in Staten Island. Imagine if that was a beat cop that knew who this guy was, maybe knew his mom, his brothers and sisters. It'd been, hey, easy, don't, you don't need to do this. This guy's okay, he's doing something bad, but we can handle this as opposed to this like us against them, militaristic savage mentality. Like they're, they're all evil criminals out to kill me. And too many people are shot before there's any conversation or effort to deescalate or shoot to shoot to stop as opposed to shoot to kill. So much of this goes on that is problematic. We just feel that this film might help a little bit in getting people to rethink and maybe institute um, some of these tactics a, a bit more in the policing that we that we live with, that we pay for. <laughs> yeah. So shit, you know. You talked about trying to get in front of Eric Adams. Is there any talk about getting in front of law enforcement? Do you think they'd be receptive? Well, that's 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 what I mean, because Eric Adams, who I voted for, was a former police officer, 20 years on the force. So that's why we're saying this a lot. Hopefully that'll spark a, a connection. But police forces, those people that do this just to to really look and consider ways of policing better. 
um, better tactics, better thought process and situations. I mean, look, I know when cops show up on the calls, they're not um, trained in psychology for the most part, or how do I, there was a clip I saw just recently, a woman, white woman, I believe, or maybe Spanish who was going, had a, um, a de dementia issue and the family had called for the police the cop shows up and you see it from his body cam, he's screaming. The woman had a knife, but clearly she was having a mental issue and the family called to get help. Put that weapon down, put that weapon down. And you, it's a horrifying clip. And then the guy unfortunately opens fire. Ugh. And then you hear the story, like what the context was. The family called, their, their loved one was having an issue. It was a mental breakdown of you know, uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever it is cop terrified just shoots like what the hell yeah. so i think we can do this better if we put some effort into it and hopefully this 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 film could spark a discussion and remind people how we got hostage negotiation all over the world let's not forget this new york cop got a degree in psychology and was able to think this through these guys don't want to do these guys want to get home you know they he was able to understand the pieces on the chessboard a bit better than the typical cops who wanted to once again, most likely throw some tear gas in there and go in guns blazing. That's not the solution that would have had most of these people still be alive to this day. Even if you're not involved in anything as high level as, you know, armed standoffs, like just yeah. the, the lesson of what adrenaline does to your decision-making in this movie. Great and the need to just step back and think is like, it's, it's helpful to me, like in my job, typing things and interviewing people. So just yeah. like step back and think a little bit and don't rise to anger. Like, it's just, it's a very important movie. We're in a really, just in America, it's a very polarizing time. I've had to dial back on the news that I watch because I'm like, wait a minute, you know, it's politics stuff. It's like, it's kind of like sports. Like, you know, I'm a sports head, NBA playoffs and you watch, the the news or you watch espn i should say and these guys are talking about they're going into all the minutiae but it's like you know it's just you know they create sometimes the news which is sort of like sports you know which team are you for you know are you rooting for those guys or no we're rooting for these guys. sometimes it gets too much where well, i go wait i gotta dial this back because I, because it's been problematic for us to have conversations that need to be had as opposed to, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're down with this. I hate you now. No, man, come on. We could find these places where we could talk it out, be cool with each other. And I'm just avoiding talking politics a lot and immersing ourselves in that because it's become so inflamed. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I worked for the Associated Press for 11 years and I think it like, huh affected my brain in a way where I saw everything as like a news story. Yeah. And like nobody writes a news story when you go to the park and have a nice day and hang out and, you know, eat a bagel and go to the library for a little bit. Like that's not a news story, but that's just as real as the terrible things that happen that we hear about all the time. Right. It was the illusion that the world is just constant chaos. And sometimes it's not, maybe most of the time it's not. Yeah. I don't know. That's so true. It's, it's interesting just mentioning Associated Press and the media and the news and all that stuff was a big part of my life. And uh, growing up, as you probably remember as well, uh, you know, obviously you're younger than me, but when before we had cable news, 
network news was was clearly not too much leaning left or right. They kind of gave you the news and tried to remain straight down the middle. And then we developed this news as entertainment for profit. And I got to get these numbers. I got to get my ratings. So they clearly make the decisions as to what they're going to focus on and for specific reasons. And it made me think in thinking about how problematic it is. It, it reminded me, you know, I remember Walter Cronkite, and, you know, the, the, that, that half an hour national news, but also AP, UPI, all those news services just gave you the news as opposed to too much bias. And I like that, need that, and wish we had that, but we're in a different world where it's about ratings too much. And that's problematic. And I think a reason why we're so caught up in what we're caught up in, along with social media, of course, taking you further down the rabbit hole. So. And then you mix news and social media, because I would straight up get disciplined at the AP if I put too much opinion in a story. Like it, it, it was like a fireable offense. Like if you were to spin for one candidate or the other, you would be out of there. Like you would be gone. Yeah, I miss that. I miss that, dude. If they can make that a, a commercial thing where you can just get news. And I'm sure it is that 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 guy, Shepard Smith, who used to be a, a Fox. Well, he was on Fox, but not as crazy. <laughs> seems to have a more of a, you know. But that's the thing now. How can you get a product that doesn't get you too inflamed one way or the other? But I guess that's, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Mm -hmm. One of the first hip hop songs I ever heard was Rapture. Um, yeah. The one that, you know, yeah. if we call that a hip hop song, it's almost more like a song about hip hop than a hip hop song. That's a good but description. Yeah. It's the first quote unquote rap song to be on MTV. Debbie yeah. is your friend. She name checks you. She yep. says, Fab Fry, Freddie told me everybody's fly. So you get the credit there. Yeah. But at the same time, is it weird? Did you feel weird about the first rap video? being a Blondie video on no, MTV. not at all. And it was it was strategic, but that wasn't by design. But I specifically sought out people in that new wave punk rock space because what I was, I was reading about it. I was still at home in Brooklyn, but I was, it was a little corner store in the neighborhood of Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn that, that had some punk rock fanzines, believe it or not. Must've got shipped there by mistake. So I'm <laughs> curious, super curious kid. And I'm reading about the beginnings of punk rock and new wave and some, and the, and the rat, I got a strong sense of the radical revolutionary nature of a lot of those groups that wanted to go against older, more established rock. And some articles you read, these guys say, oh, we're a band, but we don't even know how to play our instruments and we don't even read music. You know, that whole punk attitude was fascinating to me because it was really going against what had become more established rock. And I was like, man, these guys are wild. And they might, some of these people I thought might be open to these ideas that I had of looking at this hip hop culture, this, what we know of as hip hop in a different light. And that was my objective. I wanted to be a visual artist, but I wanted to create a space that made us look better. I wanted to take control of the narrative and that was motivating things I was doing. So when I connected with people in New Wave, like it was particularly Chris Stein from Blondie. Chris and Debbie were a couple and I was, and I developed a really good relationship with Chris, hence Debbie. And then I talk all these things with Chris and Chris was like, yeah, I think that's a good idea. You know, like graffiti as an art movement and this new thing going on as a new kind of music that I felt had a rebellious energy similar to punk in new way, but yet a different beat, different rhythm. 
Chris Stein and other people I connected with that were like the intelligentsia of new wave and punk, like got it. And they embraced me and then became a mentor. So the idea is that rapture was actually the idea that rapture was an incredible thing. But another part of what the intention was, was there was this record by Sheik, um, oh, yeah. Nakarajas, called Good Times, which oh, yeah. was a huge radio record, pop, if you will, crossover, but it was a record that every rapper wanted to rap to and DJs wanted to cut. So I'd be I would explain this to Chris, how this song is the biggest song right now. And, and, and Chris was into doing some more danceable type music and he was following what they were doing. And so Chris said, you know, Freddie, what, I, what, what we should do is I'm gonna reach out to those guys and maybe we can do a Blondie and Chic concert and then you'll get some of these rap guys and we'll showcase them and get a lot of media there and expose this all to this to, to the audience. Because if one or two rap records were out, that was it. But nobody understood there was this whole culture. There was this whole thing. So Chris was thinking like that and they went and made this rap record, this record with rap in it, which is where I like to describe, I don't, I don't call it a hip hop record. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a record that has rap, that, that, that's a nice setup for what was coming because Debbie is reiterating things I would tell her. Like I would tell her, there's fly guys, there's fly girls, there's DJs and being fast and flashes the fastest. <laughs> and so she, the way she put it together in this unique way, which is her style, I felt, that's so cool and kind of a goofy, cool way to introduce the audience to this idea, which when they then would a few years later get to know, like, wait a minute, this is a whole deep thing. And then the way she gave me a shot, it was all beyond my expectation, but yet something I was looking to do to make a cultural connection so that I could help bring this culture give it some, give it some light. In fact, meeting Warhol, the first time I met Andy Warhol was through Chris and Debbie. And they took me, I was like looking at his work as a visual artist. That was a big inspiration, what Andy Warhol was doing and all this other stuff. I was just trying a way to take the inspiration and do my own thing, which luckily I, I got to do. So, yeah. Well, so I don't, are you the, and I should know this and I apologize because I know it's out there, but are you the one who connects Basquiat with Andy Warhol? No, I didn't connect Jean, but Jean and I, around the same time, I'm connecting with Chris and Debbie from Blondie, uh, working on this underground public access cable TV show called Glenn O'Brien's TV Party, which right. was super low budget. Glenn was also like a major mentor to me. Jean-Michel popped up around that same time and met a lot of these same people. So being among few African-Americans on that scene, John and I connected immediately, similar interests, similar age, similar background. Although my dad was an accountant like Jean's, but my, my dad was a little more open, tolerant, you know, cannabis smoker, jazz hipster. Um, and so we had so many things we could talk about. Plus I used to cut school and go to museums in New York City and got comfortable with the idea of art. Jean's mom would take him to museums a lot. So we had a, yeah. a similar knowledge and everything. So we both were like, we're trying to do the same stuff in the same space. So we just became homies. And Chris and Debbie were the first people to buy artwork for me as well as Jean-Michel. Eventually, Andy Warhol was plugged in, what was happening, who was making noise. So things were hitting his radar. 
And eventually, as you know, if you for those that don't know, Jean-Michel and Andy Warhol later collaborated on a series of paintings, which was mind-blowing. And I, you know, and I got to hang with Andy a bunch more because of Jean is his friendship. And that that was a pinnacle thing for us that showed we were on the right track. And this guy was now looking at things we were doing as being cool and interesting, which was like, man, we're, we're, we're doing the right thing. Because in the mainstream, very little mainstream acknowledgement, well, we weren't necessarily looking for that. We wanted our peers, people in other bands, other kind of cool artists and other underground filmmakers to see that we were making moves was really what motivated us at that time. And so... See, for me, this is like this downtown scene that you're part of and he's part of and New Wave is part of, that is like the best part of American culture to me, like the early 80s, late 70s. It was. And it's incredible, and everything that comes out of it. And it's incredible to me that this happens at the same time that we're told from movies of that era that, you know, it's constant crime, it's constant danger. Was it? I mean, to just- It was rough in the streets. Yeah, but the the image and the stereotyping of the image, it wasn't very nuanced. So the the South Bronx was this unbelievably decimated part of the Bronx that once again, even when I look at image from from back then, even in Wild Style, we have clips where we ride by some of these blocks. It's shocking how devastated it was. And that was urban blight. It was. It was symbolic around the world. People would think everywhere in New York was somewhat like that. And so coming from Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, which was a primarily a community of brownstones and working class people to lower middle, if you will, people were like, man, is it really as bad as they say when I travel and meet people? I'd be like, what do you mean? Oh, I've seen the images and I go, oh man, no, it's not like that in Bed-Stuy, but I know what you mean because it was rough in, in parts of the city, um, but they depicted it to be so much worse. There was a racist tinge to that because anytime you'd see a black or Latin person, you would depict, they would be oftentimes depicted as criminals or crime or doing something bad. So that was a big part of the narrative I wanted to adjust to show that we were creatives. Those street kids with sneakers and hats on backwards, we were not just the worst kids ever. We were just young kids figuring out a way to entertain ourselves. We stumbled into this way to express ourselves, especially when you saw how bombed out the Bronx looked. And a lot of graffiti was scrawling vandalism, but then guys would make amazing murals and color and beautify entire areas and parts of the city and we felt pretty good about it. And I felt like it should be looked at as an art form. Some of us were had those capabilities and that's what I wanted to get people to do. And that's what I wanted to, you know, that's what I wanted to help to be a part of. And so we were able to pull it off <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> oh, to a huge extent. I mean, yeah. one of those, as one of those artists, as one of those graffiti artists who brought this culture across, how did you feel yesterday seeing that a Jean-Michel Basquiat sold for $85 million? I didn't even know that happened, but that's going to be a thing that's going to recur continually. But I did have a Basquiat experience over the weekend. I went to the exhibit King Pleasure that his family, his sisters put together. And so most Jean-Michel exhibits that I go to, which, are, which have massive lines, anywhere there's a Jean-Michel exhibit in the world, yeah. 
people line up out the building around the block, which is incredible. But this exhibit, I, from just what I was seeing, I knew it was going to be a very special event. So a, a really good friend of mine, who also was a good friend of Jean-Michel's, flew in from L.A., with his son, I brought my daughter. It was about seven of us together that went to the exhibit. And I had the best experience, clearly, definitely the best Jean-Michel experience since the show he did at the Fun Gallery, because they recreated like Jean's home in Brooklyn. Um, one of his studio spaces with his actual art scattered around the way it would be. I spent much time with Jean-Michel at studios, smoking hella joints, just talking about stuff. So that brought his presence to me in a way that I haven't felt in a long time. And so it's just um, a mind blowing experience. I forgot the question though, what you I, asked. I, I just, how you felt about the sale, but my God. Oh, no, the, well, yeah, Ooh. the prices are insane. No, go on, you know. <laughs> the prices are insane. That's something you really can't focus on, but too many people just focus on the numbers. The fact that um, Jean's work is just, exceeded the plan that we would both talk about, figuring out a way to get into the culture, to get into galleries, to get people to look at us and treat us in a certain way. Um, and then sadly, Jean left us way too soon, but what he did and is resonated around the planet in a way that is unbelievable. I'm constantly blown away that my homie's work has this relevance for, for people around the world. Mission accomplished. <laughs> it still continues. It's kind of crazy. We don't use this word very often here, but that was the legendary Fab Five Freddy talking about his new film, Hold Your Fire, which he produced and is now in theaters and available on video on demand. Go check it out if you get the chance at all. Really excellent film. Really important. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us whenever you like at moviemaker.com. And uh, see you real soon.